from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, October 13th. Today, how Amy Coney Barrett would view her role on the court, why anti-vaxxers have gone global, and a question about counting mail ballots. So today was the first day that we heard Judge Amy Coney Barrett taking questions from the Senate. Can you set the scene for us of the day? So Judge Barrett walked in with a mask on because this is a hearing that is in the middle of a pandemic, and it's in the middle of a pandemic that has infected a number of Republican senators on the committee as well. I'm Amber Phillips. I analyze politics for The Fix blog at The Washington Post. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Welcome back, Judge. Uh, Thank you. What we started with was a long, long two days that will begin with 30 minutes of questions per senator on the committee. There are 22 senators on the committee. Once they get through that, they're going to do it all again tomorrow. You get to go back and, and ask more questions. And I think the length of this underscores how serious the entire Senate takes what's happening before them, which is a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. But You know, this is all happening under the pretense that she's going to get confirmed. Republicans almost certainly have the votes to do that without any Democratic help. So with that in mind, what were some of the questions that she got from Democrats in the Senate? Democrats really want to know how she's going to vote on massive issues that could come before the court. Now, do you know how many Americans have obtained insurance? To the Affordable Care Act? I do not. You criticized the decision written by Justice Roberts upholding the Affordable Care Act. In what way did the Chief Justice go beyond the ACA's plausible meaning? Most immediately, as we've talked about, is the Affordable Care Act. The court is going to hear a case a week before the election, and under Republicans' really speedy timeline on Barrett's confirmation, she could be seated by then. For me, My vote depends a lot on these responses because these are life or death questions for people. And the case will essentially ask the court whether to uphold the law or strike it all down. And so there is really great concern about what your view is. Uh, That case is coming up. Um, Can you give us at least your view? Well, Senator, the issue and the case... And how did she navigate answers to those questions about what her views are on the Affordable Care Act and how she could potentially rule on an issue related to the ACA? She said, I'm not going to tell you guys how I would rule. Any issue that would arise under the Affordable Care Act or any other statute should be determined by the law, by looking at the text of the statute, by looking at precedent um, the same way that it would for anyone. And if there were policy differences or policy consequences, those are for this body. Um, What she's modeling this off of is something called the Ginsburg Rule, named after the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, of course, uh, you know, is vacancy she's trying to fill. Well, I think what's interesting here is that 
She and President Trump's two other nominees on the court have taken this to an extreme by saying even stuff as settled as, for example, abortion law, which was another major topic Democrats wanted to ask, or whether the president could delay the election, which she would say over and over again, I'm not going to talk about it. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question. But again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda, because I'm not. I don't have any agenda. I have no agenda to try to overrule Casey. Um, I have an agenda to stick to the rule of law and decide cases as they come. It was also interesting to hear Judge Barrett talk about Antonin Scalia Barrett earlier in her career clerked for Scalia and in the ways that Republican senators have talked about that legacy or that influence on her career, it seems like they are really hoping that she is Scalia incarnate, that she would be conservative justice and the same model as him. And even though she talked about how significant of a time and and influence this had been on her career. I would say that Justice Scalia was obviously a mentor. And as I said, um, in the when I accepted the president's nomination, that his philosophy is mine, too. She was also very clear, you know, I am not going to be Justice Scalia. I'm going to be Justice Barrett. If I'm confirmed, you would not be getting Justice Scalia. You would be getting Justice Barrett. And seemed to be pushing back against that framing that she is just Scalia all over again. Yeah, that's right. She said exactly what you said, Martine. I'm not Scalia. I'm Justice Barrett. Uh, If I get to be a justice on the Supreme Court. She also said... Look, even though Scalia and I believe in this concept of originalism, which is to read the text as the founders uh, you know, intended it, rather than try to read it through the lens of more modern times, it doesn't mean we're all going to come to the same conclusion. Originalists don't always agree, and neither do textualists. Justice- I think part of the reason she wanted to separate herself from Justice Scalia and, and this framing that she's just this super reliable conservative vote, and she might very well be, but it's because she she might not know in some of these big cases how she would decide. And for example, President Trump's first nominee on the Supreme Court, Justice Neil Gorsuch, is a very conservative judge and justice. And a couple months ago, he ended up you know, helping the court uphold LGBT protections in the workplaces in a way that completely changed the landscape uh, that upset a number of Republicans and conservatives. And so I think... Judge Barrett, if she's thinking this far ahead, is probably trying to tell Republicans, hey, if I decide something based on the letter of the law that isn't consistent with conservative principles, don't get mad at me. I'm not Justice Scalia. I'm my own justice. But I also think it's important to remember that even though Judge Barrett right now is saying, you know, I can't talk publicly about how it rule on certain issues and was trying to not uh, show her hand of how she would think about really critical rulings. At the same time, she has written about this stuff before. It's not like she hasn't said publicly how she approaches a lot of these questions and what her judicial philosophy is when it applies to things like Roe v. Wade. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so she tried to separate herself from her previous words in two separate ways. One is to say, hey, something like abortion, that's my own personal opinion. It's based on my faith and how I raise my family. But that doesn't mean I'm going to bring that in to how I I rule. You know, I should say that our own post Sungmin Kim talked to legal experts on both sides who say she can say stuff like that, but they still truly believe that Barrett would 
decide to restrict or completely overturn abortion rights. Like the fact of the matter is judges base their decisions in part off their own background and upbringing and how they see the world. The second way she tried to separate herself from her words was specifically on Obamacare, where she had written critically about the Supreme Court's decision to uphold Obamacare's constitutionality a couple different times. And, you know, what she said was, I'm not hostile to the ACA. I'm not hostile to any statute that you pass. I'm not hostile to the ACA. And that, you know, don't presume her criticism then would portend how she might rule, you know, when the case becomes before them in November, in part because it's a two entirely different legal challenges, she was saying. And the cases on which I commented, and we can talk at another time, I guess, about the context, the distinctions between academic writing and judicial decision-making, But those were on entirely different issues. So we're still pretty early in this questioning process. Of course, Wednesday has a whole other 12 hours of questions. But I'm wondering, so far, do you feel like this has gone pretty well for Republicans? Especially when you think about what this was like last time a Supreme Court justice was confirmed. It was Kavanaugh. It was so contentious. And that this, in comparison, seems like it has very few fireworks and I would argue, is pretty close to a best-case scenario for Republicans. I think that's right, Martin. Yeah, that would be in my analysis as well. The one headline I could see liberals that came out of this morning grabbing onto was when she asked if she thought Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided she wouldn't commit. Or, for example, she wouldn't commit to uh, recusing herself from a question about deciding the presidential election when it's Trump who put her on the court right before this election. Are you able to commit to recuse yourself from disputes arise out of the 2020 presidential election? Senator Leahy, I commit to you to fully and faithfully applying the law of recusal, but I can't offer a legal conclusion right now about the outcome of the decision I would reach. So there's there's some stuff there, I think, for liberals to grab onto. But, you know, she is also trying to push back against, she used this term, a caricature of her as this super ultra-conservative, closed-minded Christian judge. And so she's aware of the criticism and able to adeptly push back on that. And we still have some big questions coming from Democrats, including Senator Kamala Harris, the vice presidential nominee for Democrats, that could stir up some fireworks. But you're right, Martine, it's very possible Republicans get through this week of hearings without any huge headlines that fire up an already excited to vote liberal base, because that's what they don't want right now. Amber Phillips writes about politics for The Fix. So for the last few months, I've been looking into vaccines, mostly the geopolitics of vaccines and who's going to get a vaccine when and how each country is approaching that question. And I was looking into that question and I started to notice a lot of disinformation and misinformation about vaccines. And the more I looked into it and the more people I talked to, I realized that that was no accident, that actually since the start of this pandemic, this anti-vaccine movement that's really active in the United States has been transformed and it's also sort of globalizing. My name is Emily Rahala and I cover foreign affairs. 
And when you say that you've been seeing disinformation or misinformation, what kinds of things are you seeing online about a COVID vaccine? There's been this series of quote-unquote anti-corona or anti-coronavirus protests. Big gatherings in Berlin, in London, in Canada and elsewhere, where people were getting together and saying a variety of different things that, that didn't really seem to go together. They were saying no masks, no lockdown, and no vaccines, as well as other sort of far right wing political messaging. And I was sort of wondering how these things connect and where it came from. And the things that you're describing, in some ways, it reminds me of what we've heard from the anti-vax movement before this pandemic started, when it comes to other theories that are not true about how vaccines can cause autism and stuff like that, that they sound like similar ideas and similar ways of communicating those ideas. That's exactly right. Like, this movement is not new, nor is it uniquely American. But the U.S. for many years now has been sort of the heart both in terms of the number of people and the amount of content of this sort of digital anti-vaccine movement. So this is a movement that propagates false and misleading information about vaccine safety. And one of the biggest claims that they make, which is false, which you mentioned, is that the idea that vaccines cause autism. And just to be very clear, this is this is false. This has been disproved and discredited, but it's a really potent idea that they have been spreading across the United States and around the world for years. And with the advent of pandemic, their claims about the safety of vaccines and the efficacy of vaccines have really been amped up, A, and then B, they're sort of mixing and merging with this broader sort of anti-mask, anti-lockdown, anti-social distancing, even anti-science ideology that's sort of crystallizing around this moment. And is your sense that this movement that is against a COVID vaccine, that it's still pretty fringy? Or is it starting to get some momentum and actually persuading a significant part of the population? Yeah, this is a this is a really sort of important and dangerous moment for vaccination. There's already a large number of people in this country and, and people elsewhere in places like France and Germany, Canada, the UK, that were doubting the safety and efficacy of vaccines before this happened. Then comes the coronavirus. All of a sudden, instead of being a niche issue talked about by new parents, you know, vaccination is something that's on the news every day. Everyone's nervous about it. And the president of the United States is talking about speeding up the timeline for vaccines all the time. Through Operation Warp Speed, the federal government is providing unprecedented support and resources to safely expedite the trials. We're on track to deliver and distribute the vaccine uh, in a very, very safe and effective manner. Uh, we think we can start sometime in October, uh, maybe a little bit later than that. So this sort of turbocharges the movement and takes what might be very reasonable, legitimate questions about the speed of vaccine development in this case, and is trying to mix that in with other questions about the speed and testing of vaccines in general. And I think that's what's so complicated about this moment is that it is actually really nuanced. That on the one hand, vaccines have become a very political issue here in the U.S. You have President Trump talking about vaccines in a way that I think can be correctly characterized as irresponsible and that there are significant concerns that there could be pressure put on the FDA to approve a vaccine before it's ready. And there are very good questions about making sure that a vaccine that does come out for COVID is safe and is thoroughly vetted. But at the same time, 
vaccines are good and they save lives. And it feels like it's hard to communicate. Yes, we should be careful about this first COVID vaccine and make sure it's thoroughly vetted, but also not go in the completely opposite direction and think that vaccines as a concept are bad or are fake or should not be used because we know that vaccines are a good thing. That's right. I mean, vaccines save two to three million lives every year. But because there's this sort of understandable fear right now, you know, specifically about the potential of a U.S. vaccine being rushed or other vaccines being rushed, anti-vaccine campaigners are not necessarily acting in good faith. This is a movement that makes money, that is trying to proselytize and bring in new members and seize on this moment to broaden their base. And what we're seeing as that happens, is it's not becoming just about the specifics of this coronavirus vaccine. It's becoming, can you trust science at all? Can you trust any scientist? Is this all a big plot? Is this all a big conspiracy? And it's about sort of questioning the very underpinning of, you know, the world as we know it. And vaccines is just part of that. And what do we know about who is behind this newest era of the anti-vax campaign and how they're spreading this agenda? So there's some really good concrete examples we can look at. One is prominent anti-vaccine campaigners, including RFK Jr., so the nephew of the former U.S. president, who is a very prominent anti-vaccine campaigner. In late August, he spoke at a rally in Berlin. They love pandemics for the same reason they love war because it gives them the ability to impose controls on the population that the population would otherwise never accept. That was sort of perhaps the biggest yet example of this nascent movement that's combining vaccine hesitancy, the anti-vaccine movement, anti-lockdown policies. So people who are saying no masks, no social distancing, this is a hoax, this is a conspiracy, as well as far-right groups that are also finding this message really attractive. So, you know, literal neo-Nazis and other elements of the German far right. So this is a case where we had a very prominent U.S. campaigner speaking to this cheering crowd around all of these themes. And the only thing between them and our children is this crowd that has come to Berlin. And we're telling them today, you are not going to take away our freedoms. You are not going to poison our children. We are going to demand our democracy back. Thank you all very much for fighting. Another really good example was that video that you might remember from May. It was called The Plandemic. It was a conspiracy theory video staged to look like a documentary made in California. And it went completely viral. It started in vaccine groups in the United States. It bounced around to Mega, the American right, and other far-right groups, and got exported around the world. And within days of its release, it had been translated into 10 languages and was spreading all over Facebook, all over YouTube, and all over the world, really. So what are public health officials trying to do to combat these messages if they have been so effective in disseminating throughout the world so quickly? I think it's been a struggle. Um, We've seen some action from big tech so far, Efforts to, you know, say, take that video pandemic off of the web to close Facebook groups that are propagating false anti-vaccine information. There's also the other half of this is, you know, you can ban 
platforms, but that doesn't take away the ideology that's spreading and it doesn't take away the fear that these false ideas are trying to address. And to correct the narrative in some ways, I think there's going to be a more sort of assertive campaign by public health officials, by the World Health Organization to present facts. Vaccinations save two to three million lives a year. The coronavirus is real. It is not a, a deep state plot. It's a matter of curbing the spread of this false information and also crafting a new narrative. And and because of everything that's happening and all the false information, including from politicians, that has been very difficult so far. And what does this all mean for that time in the future, whenever it comes, when we do have a COVID vaccine or several COVID vaccines and we're trying to get Americans to take them so that we can just have this pandemic be over? That's really the big question. I mean, there are worrying signs so far that fewer people in this country and fewer people in other countries, in the UK, for instance, in Germany, are feeling like they're definitely going to take this vaccine even after it's proved safe and effective. Vaccine confidence, the belief that people should and will get vaccinated, has really taken a hit because of this, because of the pandemic, because of all the disinformation. And the big question is, when that vaccine is rolled out, how will it be rolled out? When will it be rolled out? And and are people going to feel comfortable enough to take I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Our big number is one. One episode per day, one story per episode, one really deep dive. At a time when the world is more complex than ever, On Point's daily dedicated conversation takes the time to make the world more intelligible. From the state of democracy, to AI, to the wonders of the natural world. That's On Point from WBUR, one podcast we think you should subscribe to. Emily Rahala covers foreign affairs for The Post. And now, one more thing. We've been asking you for your questions about voting this year, and we received one from a listener in Florida named Nelson. He asked about when states start counting mail-in ballots. He wondered, are they counted as they come in, or do they all sit in a hopefully secure room waiting to be counted starting on Election Day? Probably not surprising to you or to your listeners. It varies by state. That's Amber McReynolds. She's been on our show before to talk about voting by mail. She was a Colorado elections official for 13 years, and now she's the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition. Amber says when it comes to how and when states process mail-in ballots, it's a pretty broad spectrum. On the sort of best side of the spectrum, states start receiving and accepting and verifying the validity and and the mail ballot signatures and making sure that everything is the way it's supposed to be as soon as the ballot is received. So for instance, North Carolina has already put up data showing this, right? So they've been accepting and processing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, which is sort of not the good end of the spectrum, are states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan. And they're they're a minority of states that still do this, but they do not allow election officials to process ballots, meaning not tally, but the full process until Election Day. So in those states, voters won't know until kind of later in the game. The best practice, the most secure process is for ballot processing to start upon receipt so that voters 
know that their ballot was received. They can kind of check it off the list and move on and not have to worry about the process after that. And that's certainly the recommendation that we make to states across the country. Amber McReynolds is the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute and Coalition. If you're curious about when your state specifically starts counting mail-in ballots, we'll put a link to a resource on that from the National Conference of State Legislatures at postreports.com. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. It's been more than a week since we learned about the president's COVID-19 diagnosis, but we still don't know how sick he actually was. Our fellow Washington Post podcast, Can He Do That?, just published a new episode about why that matters, emergency transfers of power, and how the 25th Amendment actually works. It's a really fascinating episode. We'll put a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 